Welcome. Please be seated. <clears throat> and on behalf of Pastor J.D. Farag, we'd like to welcome you to our midweek Bible study here at Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. So glad that you've joined us. For any visitors here, a special thank you and welcome to you. Look forward to our fellowship afterwards. If we have the time, make the time. You hear what I said? Oh, Pastor J.D., don't you worry. I gave him the night off. You know, I'm not so sweet. But he'll be back on Sunday, ready to go, and looking forward to that teaching as well. Before we get started, I do want to remind everyone about our prayer meeting coming up this Tuesday here in the sanctuary at 7 p.m. And I ask all that are able to come, please come out and pray with us. We are looking so forward to it. We all need prayer, and we need to pray for one another. More and more each and every day, and I know that you agree. All right, before we get started tonight, why don't we pray for God's blessing upon this teaching this evening. So join with me. Loving Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for just being who you are. And I pray, Lord, that as we get into your word this evening, you would bless everyone who would hear. No matter how tough the words may be, convicting they may be, Lord, they're also comforting. And we want that right now. So would you just meet us here in your sanctuary, your church, by the power and strength of your might, and preach and teach us. Give us ears that are willing to hear and hearts ready to receive. And we want to thank you now in the mighty name of Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ, we do pray. Amen. And so be it. So tonight, our study will be on the topic of replacement theology. Oh, are we okay here? Also known as supersessionism. And there's a few other titles that this theology goes by that those who believe it like to use. And this doctrine is not something new that just came about. In fact, we know that there is nothing new under the sun. But I will tell you, I'm very shocked on how many professing Christians believe in this doctrine still to this day. This to me should not be an issue at all, especially in the times that we are living in, where prophecy is unfolding right before our very eyes. But it's becoming very clear that many professing Christians continue to sit under this teaching willingly or not knowingly, but they seem to accept this doctrine as truth. But it's not. It's false. And some of you may be surprised regarding those biblical institutions that teach and promote this. And I have a word of advice for us all to listen to. And that is, we should never follow any teacher or denomination or ministry or movement or event that is speaking godly things, so they say, without investigating their core doctrine. This is what we should do and must do. And when people ask me things like, hey, 
Would you like to go to this or have you seen this pastor or that? Did you watch this teacher or would you like to join X, Y, and Z dealing with God's things of God? Forgive me if I'm, I pause. But I pause so I can investigate. Look well into our doing. Many people say Christian in Christ. But they are not. We need to take time to look into these things. And I believe we all should do this. Because what happens is many people are duped by a topical teaching. They're like, oh, this so-and-so group and such-and-such taught that well. And maybe they did. But that's their goal. To attract you in, get you feeling them, and then come with the false doctrine that you'll follow. So be mindful of that. Let's not forget the best lies are sprinkled with a lot of truth. Sadly tonight though, I will not have enough time to do this topic any justice that it deserves. So I encourage you, as with all topics, to look into the matter yourselves. Especially if you believe that the church has replaced Israel concerning the things of God's plan. With that said, here's what we will discuss tonight. First, and Lord willing, we're going to provide a basic definition of what this supersessionism is. Then we're going to look at some brief history regarding replacement theology. And then from the scriptures, we're going to examine God's word that clearly destroys this doctrine. And lastly, with the Lord's permission, I'm going to go through a short list of established churches that support this ideology. Are we ready? Please pray. But I do want to say, if you find yourself affiliated with these ideologies and movements um, that clearly go against God's word, especially after this teaching and you still choose to do so, I'm just going to leave that with you and the Lord. I don't have to convince, and that's so comforting. Just speak the truth. And the word, the lion, takes care of the rest. So let's define supersessionism. Quoting, supersessionism is the interpretation that the New Testament church is the new and or true Israel that has forever superseded the nation of Israel as the chosen people of God. This is what replacement theology is in a nutshell. And out of the gate, I want us to keep in mind that much of this confusion stems from the title chosen people, even the word chosen. Chosen people of God confuses so many Christians. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, later in this teaching. The title alone messes so many Christians up. And it's due to because the early church and how the early church and the, the Jews intertwined. 
and they get confused. But we need to understand that the nation of Israel and the church are two separate entities. They're not the same. First of all, Israel is God's chosen people, but the body of Christ is the church of God. They are not inclusive, even though some of God's chosen people are also a part of the body of Christ. From the scriptures, we know that the nation of Israel was born out of Egypt, as captured in the book of Exodus in chapters 2 and 3, while the church specifically was born at Pentecost, as captured in the book of Acts in chapter 2. We can also see that Israel has an ethnic, and I will even say a physical unity to God while the church has a spiritual unity to God. And take notice that every promise to the nation of Israel is an earthly promise, while all of the promises to the church are heavenly promises. We should also note that Israel's mission was to be a blessing to all nations, while the church mission is to preach the gospel and make disciples out of all nations. And yet, both Israel and the church were chosen before the foundations of the world. This is not a surprise to God or some plan B. It has always been this way with God. And this is just a short, a short, short pointed list in order to make the point, if you know what I mean. I'm sure you can find more. And the point is, Israel and the church are not the same, even though they are closely related in many ways. You know, being able to rightly divide the word of truth is very important, especially when dealing with this replacement theology. Many good scholars, and I mean many of them, have gotten this wrong. And perhaps during the early church days, this was more forgiving. But today, as Christians, we cannot afford to make this error. We have no wiggle room for this. So now, I want to look at some key factors in history that caused this bad theology in the first place. One of the reasons has to deal with the church becoming a part of the state's religion. You can see how this would be problematic. So now we have politics involved. And politics begin to sway 
how the word of God was taught. Why? Well, here you have these rulers being told that one day Jesus is coming back. And the ruler's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, and guess what? He's going to rule the world. Really? Well, what happens to me? Well, he's going to rule with an iron scepter, and he's going to dismantle all the evil kingdoms of the entire world. So what does that ruler say? Shut up! Speak not those things! Right? Gets upset. The word becomes offensive. It's not good for their business. It was an indictment on those in power. So, one of the early church pioneers, whose name was Augustine, he would overly adopt a technique that would help this out. He would use this type of biblical hermeneutic, and that was allegorizing the scripture. That's what he did. So Christ is coming back to live in our hearts. This is what began to happen. And because of this over allegory style of biblical hermeneutics, the first thing that came about was amillennialism. That's what it produced. And as much good as Augustine did as it pertains to the church, the early church, our millennialism was at the core of his doctrine. We also need to take notice that all of those good works that Martin Luther accomplished regarding salvation by grace through faith, it was amazing. But at the core of his doctrine was this belief as well. And it's from this doctrine that various beliefs of replacement theology became prominent. And I would even say dominant in the early church and even many circle Christians today. And I say the initial beliefs because it seems that there are three main concepts when it comes to supersessionism. So you have some who believe that Israel's disobedience has caused God to cast them off forever. And that's why the church has been positioned in Israel's place. And then we have another camp that believes that Israel was the physical um, solution to point to the spiritual Israel, the true solution, the church. So that's why the church is positioned the way it is. And then there's also a belief that the New Testament is where we all should put our focus. Meaning that it supersedes the Old Testament's original meanings. 
So you can take the New Testament, even though something in the Old Testament pointed forward, you can say, ah, well, it really didn't mean that. And this is what happens. So this allegorical style of hermeneutics continued, and one of the chief results is this replacement theology. Now, aside from some of the obvious problems regarding replacement theology, there is one that rarely gets traced back to the early church. And that is the fact that this ideology has been at the helm of some of the most anti-Semitic acts known to man. Even St. Augustine would write these words, quoting, the house of Israel, which God has cast off, are themselves the builders of destruction and rejectors of the cornerstone, Jesus. The Lord Christ distinguished between his faithful ones and his Jewish enemies. Now, I'm not here to knock Augustine or any other early church father who has done many, many good works for the church. But think about this. If someone with this type of knowledge, like Augustine and Martin Luther, could be on this bandwagon with the knowledge that they had, you can see how easy it would be for someone who does not have that knowledge or spiritual discernment to be so evil against the Jews under the banner of Christianity. Are you following me? And what's even more troubling about this statement and others like it is that they all seem to forget that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. They also forget that the early church was full of Jews. The church started Jewish. But the church would lose most of the Jews and all the roots of them after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It began and then culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem in 135 AD. Now we have more Gentiles that would be grafted into the early church and many would see the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple as God's judgment against the children of Israel. So by the time Augustine and others got into that position, a anti-Jewish theme was already there for a couple hundred years. And I want to be fair to Augustine in regards to this because he had a relatively mild view when it came to replacement theology. He did. 
Martin Luther started off mild and ended off wild. At one point, he thought he was the one to bring the Jews back. When that did not happen, he became anti-Semitic. Augustine ended up believing that the Jews would be saved. Not restored, saved. It's a difference. But I cannot overemphasize how much the church persecuted the Jews in the name of Christ. The Crusaders did it. That was one of their functions. Many bishops promoted this ideology. It was very detrimental to the Jews. And of course, guess what? Hitler used aspects of this to have his way with the church. This is how extreme it can become. Today we have groups under the banner of being Christians that are aiding to this rise of anti-Semitism. And it's sad. And the other problems are this belief of replacement theology makes God into a liar. Do you hear me? It makes God a liar. And it greatly hinders people's understanding of the scriptures. And this is where we're going to dive into now. I'm going to start off with covenants. Covenants that God made with the nation of Israel. First, God has an everlasting covenant with Israel as a nation. Captured in the book of Jeremiah, the book that we're in on most Thursday nights, by the way. Chapter 31, verses 35 through 36. The word of God reads, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. In verse 36, if those ordinance departs from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. We read this either last week or the week before. And take notice of the word seed. Because most, if not all of you know that this word seed means a physical offspring. Israel will always be a physical nation before the true and living God. Always. This will not change. God also has an everlasting land covenant with Israel. As captured in the book of Genesis, chapter 13 and verse 15. The word of God reads, 
For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Forever. This was and is the covenant that God made with Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. And again, look how long this covenant is in place for. The word of God says forever. Why do we think God is playing? Why would anyone? And this land for Abraham's physical descendants of the promise, that is, which is the nation of Israel, this is also echoed in the book of Psalms. Chapter 105, verses 8 through 11, as the word of God reads. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Verse 11, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. God repeats his message to his people throughout the scriptures over and over again with the same thing and ideal in mind. He is not trying to fool us. In any way. And if anything, he's trying to school us. God means what he says. God also has an everlasting throne covenant with Israel. Captured here in the book of Psalms, chapter 89, verses 34 through 37. As the word of God reads... My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Verse 36. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever, like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. We have King David here speaking in the spirit of God that his throne shall be established forever. His seed shall endure forever. Again, a physical seed and a physical throne that will see no end. This is a covenant that God will not break. He will not break any of them. And pay attention to this. God will not alter it. So no one can say that, well, this is what it kind of meant. He said he won't alter it. Not just he won't break it, he won't change it. 
will not change because God cannot lie and God does not change. What's funny is we change our minds. We change our positions. We change our processes. We change our clothes. We change everything. But God changes not. And thank God he doesn't. Could you imagine that? I wonder what God's word says today. God also has an everlasting king covenant with Israel. And this is also captured in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 33, verses 20 through 21. The word of God reads, Thus says the Lord, Listen here, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, verse 21, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. The king will reign. The one known as son of David. This is a covenant and again it cannot be broken. Think about this. He puts it on us or anyone who would challenge God if you can break my covenant. God is letting everybody know. But still many are confused. And finally, God has a covenant with Israel that they will have a kingdom that would be established forever. We see this in this, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. The word of God reads, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Are we tracking so far? I pray that we are. And we know from the scriptures, and I truly believe that there will be a physical kingdom that will have no end, and it involves the nation of Israel. They will not only come to salvation, they will be fully restored according to the scriptures. These are five physical covenants, the number of grace. It will be accomplished. These physical covenants have numerous spiritual implications, by the way, for us as Christians. And especially the way that the word of God is interpreted. These covenants are for the nation of Israel. They have not been broken or transferred to the church. Israel and the church have not become nor will become one in the same. 
You know, when the word Israel is mentioned in the scriptures, it really means Israel. That's what it means. In fact, it's been noted that the word Israel or Israelite occurs some 2,566 times throughout the scriptures. Next to the Lord himself, Israel is the most spoken about topic within the scriptures. So that would tell me that they hold some significant prominence. Wouldn't you agree? And within the Greek New Testament, Israel is referred some 77 times and on every occasion captured in the word of God, it is referring to the identity of the nation of Israel. Period. Not the church. But as with all false doctrines, there always seems to be a verse or a scripture passage somewhere that someone pulls out and says, here, what about this? And that becomes their anchor for their false theology. And they go running with it. Well, we have one here as well. But if we study to show ourselves approved, we can silence all arguments and everything that comes against the knowledge of God, tearing down all those strongholds, right? And, bring, and taking their minds and thoughts captive and bringing them into the obedience of Christ. But we have to know the word in order to do so. So, before we look at this verse that we're going to get into, I want to put it into some context to save time. So, the Apostle Paul was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to the Galatians. Why? Because after he planted the church in Galatia, Judaizers came in. They came in telling everyone who believed in Jesus Christ must also be circumcised. And they believed them. So they started practicing that, which went against everything that the Apostle Paul was teaching. It's not of works. It's not of works. You can't do anything. So he writes this letter to the Galatians, tackling that issue. From conception to birth he goes in. And now he's concluding this letter. And he's letting them know that this letter is for all. Both the Gentiles that became Christians and those Jews that became Christians. And this is where we dive in on this. With that in mind, the text in question is verse 16 captured in the book of Galatians. Um, did I give you the chapter? I believe it's chapter 6. Am I right? All right. We're going to start from verse 15. As the word of God reads. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Remember, he's concluding the letter. And here it is in verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Oh, Israel of God. The NIV even has it says even the Israel of God, which is a poor translation, by the way. And this is what they dive on. But if we read here, even here, you have to ask yourself, well, who are them? Them are the Gentiles. And the Israel of God are those Jews who came to Christ. The new creation is the church. Words matter. And so much more, there's a context. When we have the context, we can clearly see what the Apostle Paul was doing here, the point he was driving home. And I want to get technical for a moment as it deals with Jews and Gentiles. Because it is true that all outside of the house of Israel are Gentiles, right? You have Israel, Gentiles, okay? But when we become Christians, we are under the church, the body of Christ. This is very technical, but it's very true. As an individual Gentile, under Christ, I'm under the church. So according to the scriptures, there are three classes of people after the birth of the church, that is. You have the Jews or the nation of Israel. You have all of the other nations or the Gentiles. And then you have the church or the body of Christ. Are we tracking? We are all new creations in Christ Jesus. And we all make up the church. We're all parts of the body. And we do not absorb the promises or purpose of Israel. That's the fact. And this is another fundamental problem with supersessionist. They do not fully understand the purpose of Israel and God's plan. And this is also why when we have a prophecy or a dual prophecy or prophecies that include Israel and the church, they end up having to make things up. They have to interpret this so many different ways because they cannot break that relationship between the nation of Israel and the church. I'm going to give you a major example of this. It has to deal with the Olivet Discourse captured in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 24 and 25 and the Upper Room Discourse captured in the book of John chapters 13 through 17. 
These are two separate events that have two very different focuses. First of all, we should understand that the Olivet Discourse was given to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. I know that's, that's kind of crazy, but that, that, that's what it is. Are we checking with that one? And I see it being given on the first day of the week based on many factors that we will not discuss tonight. Some believe it was the second day and the fourth day, others the third and the sixth. But listen, let's just say it was on two separate days because it was. The upper room discourse was giving in an upper room, the Passover meal, on a different day. The Olivet Discourse focuses on Israel, but the Upper Room Discourse has the coming church in view. Take a look at it. Notice how the Olivet Discourse has prophecies specifically for Israel. While the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus speaks about how divine providence would come and begin to establish the church. And in the Olivet Discourse, we can see that Israel as a nation faces the great tribulation to come. While in the Upper Room Discourse, the church is facing and waiting for the rapture to come. And the rapture is captured in the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, which we all know very well. But you will not find it in the Olivet Discourse. Nowhere. And there's a reason for that. This is what rightly dividing the word of truth looks like. Because supersessionists and many others that don't go by that name, just parts of a church merged these two together under the church, which causes all kinds of confusion. Chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew is speaking to Israel, not the church. Because when you throw the church in there, oh, then guess what? <laughs> What's the bride of Christ going to do? Get beat up. She has no significance. What's the church purpose for? Then it speaks to the church meeting the wrath of God. That's what it speaks to, especially when you imply the Old Testament, what it says about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel during that, the Great Tribulation. Two out of three get killed, according to the scriptures. But we know that this is not the case at all. Captured in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, the word of God reads, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. We're not appointed to wrath. 
And I hope that we see this, believe this, and understand this. And this is not some cop-out either. Oh, man, does it get under my skin. When you're at the rapture, it's just a cop-out. Really? And most of those same people that talk about it being a cop-out were the ones that could not praise Jesus when mandates came down. Where were they at? But somehow, you'll find the strength to get through the tribulation. Oh, it's going to be done. We'll be ready for it. Okay. You go ahead and be ready. The Lord tells me we'll be gone for it. No one in their right mind will want to go through something so horrific. Now, we may face many other trials and tribulations, but nothing like called out during the Great Tribulation. The last three and a half years, oh man, unthinkable. And like Pastor J.D. talks about often, the Jewish nation has a major role to play in all of that. That's the truth. God is not done with his people. And I want to focus and stress this point. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul gives us an outline of the Jewish timeline, so to speak. Begins in Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11, and he gives us the past, the present, and the future sort of in order in those chapters. And I want to look at the present time that he was in quickly along with the future. Beginning in chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 of the book of Romans, the word of God reads, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Verse 4, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So first of all, in his present time, the apostle Paul was making this statement that all of Israel did not reject the Messiah. There's a remnant. All of them weren't killed and banished either. There was a remnant. And he is a part of that remnant. He's making that clear. And then he linked his belonging to that remnant by being from the seed of Abraham and then connecting it to the tribe of Benjamin which is very significant, by the way. And I say that because everyone from the seed of Abraham alone is not an Israelite. Are we tracking? Everyone from the seed of Abraham alone is not an Israelite. Let's not forget, before Isaac, he had Ishmael. And after Isaac, he had six more sons with his second wife, Katara. 
They are not Israelites. This is why when we read earlier in the scriptures, speaking about David, that when when you slept with your fathers, you hear that word? Fathers, plural. What fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why that's said throughout the scriptures. That's why. That's the bloodline that you must have to be an Israelite. The Apostle Paul knew that God was not done with his people at all. This is why he would continue in verses 25 and 27 of the same chapter 11, as the word of God reads. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Here the apostle Paul is quoting from the book of Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 20 and first part of verse 21. Israel will be saved. And when we read what's uh, captured in its totality in verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 59, we can see that they will also be redeemed. Redeemed, without fail, forevermore. A fact that the word of God speaks to over and over again. And we are talking about a physical Israel, separate from the church. And how anyone cannot see this as a teacher of God's word is beyond belief to me. I want to talk about spiritual blinders. And for me, none of this captured in Romans chapter 11 hits the heart more than what's captured by the Apostle Paul in verses 28 through 32. And for him being an Israelite, speaking to his fellow Christians that consisted of Gentiles as well as Jews at that time. Man, this had to be something heavy for him to say. But God would have mercy on all as we will see. Let's consider the words captured here. Beginning in verse 28. Concerning the Gospels, they are enemies for your sake. Speaking of his own countrymen. Think about that. But, listen to this, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy 
on all. We all need to understand that none of us are worthy of God's mercy because we are all, have been all, disobedient. But we are able to obtain mercy because of the one who would come from the elect of God, who is Jesus the Christ. Which brings into question, who are God's elect? We talked about earlier, right? The chosen people. What about who are God's elect captured in the book of Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22? The word of God reads beginning in verse 21. You'll see where I'm going in a second. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not, not been seen the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Here's another passage. The church is the elect. The church is the elect. You guys are wrong. This is what I'm trying to tell you is what they say. Jesus is talking about the future. Don't you see that? So isn't, doesn't that mean that the church is the elect here? And from what's presented in the scriptures, that's a resounding no. It does not. I submit to you that you will find within the New Testament over 20 different references to the word elect, which when translated from the Greek, it means chosen. 20 different references. Are you following me? And here's a few examples of its use. Jesus is called God's elect in Luke chapter 23 and verse 25. Angels are called chosen in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. Jewish Christians are called chosen in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. And the Apostle Paul's ministry was purposed for the chosen, mainly Gentiles, as seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. These are just a few out of those some 20 different references of how this word is used. Again, context and rightly dividing the word makes all the difference. Wouldn't you agree? If we were to look in the Old Testament, we would find the following as it pertains to the elect. Captured in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 45, verses 3 through 4, these are God's words to Cyrus, as the word of God reads. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And verse 4, for Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. 
So here, we can also clearly see that God calls the nation of Israel his elect as well. So when we consider the audience that Jesus was speaking to, the time frame and the context and the complete counsel of God's word, we can rightly conclude that in Matthew chapter 24, as well as the book of Mark chapter 13, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples regarding the Olivet Discourse, the elect he was talking about was the nation of Israel. And if your church believes otherwise, perhaps it's just an itch issue of not being able to rightly divide the word. But if that's in concert with not speaking about end times or prophecy or diving into the book of Revelation, you're probably in a replacement theology church. And there's a reason why the pastors won't discuss end times or prophecy or go through the book of Revelation. Because they can't. Without manipulating it so much that a fool will see there's a problem. So they stay topical. They bring in politics behind the pulpit. Talk about social issues only. One or two verses. Or have the congregation read in unison and then sit down and speak nothing about what you just read. Or have five million programs in order to pay for the church building. But I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word. Israel will not only be saved, they will be restored. Captured in the book of Revelation, speaking of, in chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, we have the ceiling of the 144,000. Now, I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to put it on the screen. Take a stab at verse 4. We can go through that one. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So what do pastors say to this that teach replacement theology? What do they say? Answer, I'll tell you what. If they even get there, whatever they say, we can rightly conclude that it's wrong. If you teach replacement theology, whatever you say about this will be wrong. In closing, I want to put up this short list of churches that are known for practicing replacement theology. Now, this list is not exhaustive at all. It's about all that would fit on the screen that you could read um, for where you're sitting at. And there may be some groups or subsets within these denominations, if you will, that have broken ranks with their parents, but their parents still teaching this garbage.
And we pass by many of these churches every single day. But it is what it is. Within this camp, we have Roman Catholicism. Now, not to be confused with all Catholics, but Roman Catholicism, absolutely. Many churches within the Southern Baptist Convention, the Episcopal Church, the National Baptist Convention in America, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the United Church of Christ, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodist Church, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, just to name a few. You see this list? And there's another camp that's closely related to the, this ideology. What they do is claim that they're the real Jews and they have become the church. They're called the Hebrew Israelites. And they're also anti-Semitic when they say they can't be because they believe that they're the Jews. This is the doctrine that Kanye West follows. That's why he's tweeting all that stuff against the Jews claiming that he's one. The real one. He's sick. He needs a lot of prayer. He believes he's a prophet. Well, he could be a prophet for Satan. So sad. The bottom line is there's no place for replacement theology. No place at all for it. And if you're going to a church that teaches this lie, you are doing yourself spiritual injustice. Let each of us pray that we continue to be Bereans as it comes to the word of God, searching out the scriptures for ourselves daily and allowing the Holy Spirit to continue to influence us the proper way. Not like the world influences or anybody else for that matter that claims to be a Christian. The Bible tells us to test the spirits and we ought to do that. And if you're a Christian, you shouldn't take offense to it. You should champion and welcome it. Israel will be saved and completely restored, and we know this as a church. We all have our purpose and plan, and in the end, God has a final word. Why don't we stand up so we can pray? Father in heaven, Lord, I just pray that you would take your word of truth and may it just resonate with us so that we would be better stewards of your word and proclaim it to others who may be bogged down with this replacement theology that causes so many problems. Help us to continue to keep our minds upon you and our eyes on you and continue to look to your word for all things that we may never be deceived, only received by your coming. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. In the mighty name of Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ we pray. Amen.